West Bank, all of Gaza Strip, and all of the Golan Heights. What everybody must understand that this is the Israeli official government policy. And that's why it has to be punished. That's how, that's why it has to be sanctioned. And that's why it has to be exposed. And Israel cannot be allowed to continue to be absolutely unaccountable to international law and absolutely imperative to international law. I want to thank you both for being with us. Mustafa Barghouti, Palestinian physician, activist, and politician. Um, uh, we also want to thank Oren Ziv in Tel Aviv, uh, reporter and photojournalist with Plus 972 magazine. That does it for our show. <clears throat> we have a job opening at Democracy Now!, major gifts officer. Learn more at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. This is Bill McKibben coming at you on KBOO Portland, Oregon. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, newly uncovered documents showed Portland City Council members met with Zenith Energy in private to cut a deal on allowing bomb trains to run through Portland. The Idaho Trans Band remains blocked. And in international news, French farmers have barricaded roads across the country to demand better prices for produce and increased government support. Good evening. This is the KBU Evening News for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I'm Ezra. And I'm Reed Johnson. New fossil fuel infrastructure was banned by Portland City Council in 2021, but it's not going anywhere. Here's why. The environmental investigative reporting outlet DSmog Blog reports this week that Portland City Commissioners Dan Ryan and Carmen Rubio engaged in a backroom deal with the Zenith Energy Corporation to revive oil train operations in the city. City officials had previously claimed council approval of Zenith Energy's controversial oil-by-rail facility was a routine administrative matter. But a Freedom of Information Act request by DSmog turned up internal documents that, quote, suggest political staff laid the groundwork for a deal, end quote. Accusations of a quote-unquote backroom deal by Ryan and Rubio have been discussed for the past year, but this is the first time detailed documentation of the situation has been released. Zenith Energy, based in Texas, purchased an old asphalt production site on the Willamette River in 2017. With grandfathered permits allowing it to fast-track its operations without regulatory scrutiny, Zenith drastically increased the number of oil trains moving through the city, despite the promise not to. 
the final agreement announced by the city in 2022, is that rather than shutting down immediately, Zenith will be allowed to continue to run crude oil bomb trains through the city for five years, then switch to, quote unquote, renewable fuels. Reporter Nick Cunningham's investigation for desmog showed the public had no input. This despite a major protest movement against increased numbers of bomb trains rolling through the region. The issue is magnified by the location of Zenith's oil terminals in the liquefaction zone of the Willamette River. Critics say if an earthquake hits Portland, facilities near the water will likely be destroyed. The Portland Mosquito Fleet, 350PDX, and the Breach Collective are organizing responses. The Oregon Zoo is celebrating the release of seven young adult condors hatched and raised at the Johnson Center for Wildlife Conservation in rural Clackamas County. The condors were let go at a site in San Simeon, California, on the central coast that is known for its giant redwood trees. The birds hatched in spring of 2022. The California condor is endangered because of historic use of, of the pesticide DDT, plus habitat loss, lead poisoning, and power line accidents. In the late 1980s, U.S. Fish and Wildlife officials counted just 22 remaining condors in the wild. Today, more than 400 condors are free-flying in California. The Confederated Tribes of the Colville have led successful campaigns to reintroduce species to eastern Washington. Recently, they focused on bighorn sheep, salmon, and the Canada lynx. Eric Tegadoff reports. Tribes are restoring native species to their habitats in Washington state. The Confederated Tribes of the Colville in eastern Washington have reintroduced a variety of species on indigenous land over the past few decades. Most recently, that includes bighorn sheep, salmon, and the Canada lynx. Rico Moore, who wrote about these efforts for Yes Magazine, says the tribe's wildlife department manager, Richard Whitney, has been an integral part of the projects. He's a very competent biologist and uses the skills he learned in his advanced degrees in wildlife biology in hand with his ancestral traditions and stories to bring back these species and really restore a community of which human beings are also a part. The tribes have led other successful reintroduction campaigns, starting with elk in the 1970s. They've also brought back sharp-tailed grouse, pronghorn, and buffalo. One of the tribe's most recent efforts is with Canada lynx. There's likely only a transient population of the lynx that live in the Kettle Mountains near the Colville Reservation. Moore says climate change-fueled megafires threaten their habitat, especially in western Oregon, and lynx are getting pushed out of the state. He says that's why the tribe's efforts are so crucial. They needed to create this population of lynx in the Kettle area so that they would have a way to get up to the populations in British Columbia and down from the populations of British Columbia, so habitat connectivity. So there's a robust augmentation project going on with the lynx. They're doing quite well. Moore says the reintroduction achievements of the Confederated Tribe of the Colville could help guide other communities. As far as a model, I think that the perspective of restoring a community, not just the animals that are desirable to humans, but all the ones that were there before, and perhaps others that may need a climate refuge or something like that. For Washington News Service, I'm Eric Tegadoff. French farmers have barricaded roads across the country to demand better prices for produce and increased government support. On Monday, roughly 1,000 farmers with 500 tractors established choke points at significant points into Paris. 
They are pushing the French government to reconsider plans to reduce subsidies on agricultural diesel and ease regulations on fallow or inactive farmland. They also point to the EU deals to increase meat imports with South American trade bloc Mercosul and tariff-free grain imports with Ukraine as threatening domestic markets. They joined French teachers and school support workers who struck Thursday to protest for better pay and recruitment. Arnaud Rousseau is the leader of the biggest farmers union in France, France, the FNSEA. Speaking with Europe One broadcasters, he was clear the intention of the barricade was not to disrupt food supply chains, saying, quote, Our objective is not to starve French people, but to feed them. Our objective is to put pressure on the government so that we can quickly find a solution for a way out of the crisis, end quote. In response to the barricade, President, President Emmanuel Macron called a meeting with ministers Monday afternoon to discuss the protest. It's a fentanyl state of emergency in the city of Portland. That's according to Oregon Governor Tina Kotek, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, and Multnomah City, excuse me, Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson. The governor, mayor, and county chair say the state of emergency will last 90 days and will feature, quote, cooperation between agencies in a downtown command center. The recommendation came from the governor's task force that met last year. The Associated Press reports the state the county, and the city are focusing on boosting the effectiveness of first responders and connecting people in crisis with drug treatment, in addition to shutting down street drug sales. In a statement, Kotex said, quote, Our country and our state have never seen a drug this deadly and addictive, and all are grappling with how to respond. The U.S. hopes retaliation on Iranian-backed groups won't ignite the entire region, President Biden goes to Michigan with the UAW's endorsement, and Missouri Senator Cori Bush says she's cooperating with campaign finance investigations. With more on the story, it's Farah Siddiqui with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. The best option of, of a bad series of choices is going to be to hit something that is very important to the Iranians, but it is not something that is strikes at the core of the regime or at the core of some of their capabilities. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling told CNN there are choices, most of them bad, for how the U.S. can respond to the drone strike that killed three service members Sunday. The Iranian-backed Iraqi militia that was likely behind the strike says it's suspending attacks on U.S. forces. President Joe Biden told reporters he's decided on a response, but wouldn't give details. Biden has been vocal about keeping the war in Gaza from becoming a wider conflict. Former U.N. ambassador presidential candidate Nikki Haley took the opportunity to criticize what she calls Biden's inability to protect the country. Why did it have to come to this? 165 strikes. Why was there a second strike? Why wasn't something done in the very beginning? And my husband's deployed. We expect America to protect them. And Joe Biden did not protect those soldiers. Biden is expected in Michigan today, where many in the large and politically important Arab American community are enraged by his support for Israel. The president can expect a warm greeting by the United Auto Workers, but there were protests against him even at the union's endorsement rally last week. This is your campaign. That same message has defined my presidency. I'm determined. No, no, here's what it did. Some Michigan workers say they might not back Biden even if they think he's far better than former President Donald Trump. UAW President Sean Fain cited Biden standing on picket lines during last year's successful strike as decisive. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump 
blamed the American workers. Our endorsements must be earned. Joe Biden has earned it. A Delaware judge is voiding the $56 billion compensation package for Elon Musk, CEO of electric car maker Tesla. Ruling in a shareholder lawsuit, the judge called the largest such package in U.S. corporate history unfair. The company's share price fell 3% on the news. Missouri Senator Cori Bush says she is cooperating with Department of Justice investigations regarding her husband's employment as her private security. The progressive Democrat describes the charges as politically motivated. Organizations have lodged baseless complaints against me, peddling notions that I have misused campaign funds to pay for personal security services. That simply is not true. I have complied with all applicable laws and house rules. Hiring private security is permissible and campaigns can pay family members who provide a bona fide service. Threats against members of Congress have soared since the January 6th insurrection. I'm Farah Siddiqui for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. In another story about fossil fuels reported by the environmental investigative reporting outlet Desmog Blog this week, new documents show that the fossil fuel industry knew about climate change and studied its effects as far back as the mid-1950s. Smog blog reports that scientist Charles David Keeling, who developed the Keeling curve showing the rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide caused by human use of fossil fuels, began his work with a grant from a foundation started by, quote, oil and auto companies in 1954. The research was done at the California Institute of Technology between 1954 and 1956, funded by what was called the Air Pollution Foundation, originally to investigate ways to minimize smog. In addition, DSMOG reports, funds for the early climate research came from the American Petroleum Institute and what is now the Western States Petroleum Association. The newly uncovered correspondence between Caltech and the Air Pollution Foundation by DSMOG blog's Rebecca John shows, quote, that the potential climate impact of fossil fuel generated CO2 emissions was communicated to the foundation in November of 1954, end quote. That means the gas and oil industry knew of the destructive potential of fossil fuel burning 25 years before the Exxon Corporation started its own internal study of the issue. Budget cuts at both the Trevor Project and Trans Lifeline means reductions in suicide means reductions in suicide prevention and crisis hotline services for the queer community. Trans Lifeline shut down for two weeks this past December after laying off a significant portion of their workers. They've since reinstated hotline services, but with limited hours, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific time, as opposed to their previous 24-hour availability. The hotline is unique in that it won't call medical or emergency services on someone without their explicit consent. They've also paused the distribution of microgrants, which were meant to assist trans people with name changes and other gender-related expenses. The Trevor Project is another queer-oriented hotline, which has laid off 12% of their crisis counselor staff. The public was only given a month's notice of the layoffs, and staff reportedly received very short notice as well. Trans and non-binary people are already more likely than cisgender, straight adults to deal with suicide and self-harm, according to a study from the UCLA School of Law. Diego Sanchez is with PFLAG, an LGBTQ advocacy group. He told PBS, The diminished capacity is troubling, leaving more queer people without resources than before. Those in crisis can still call the Trevor Project anytime at 1-866-488-7386 or Trans Lifeline between the hours of 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Pacific Time at 877-565-8860. Trans minors in Idaho are still safe to access gender-affirming care 
thanks to the U.S. Court of Appeals continuing to block House Bill 71. It's a new Idaho law that made it a statewide felony to provide trans minors with puberty blockers, hormone replacement therapy, and other gender-affirming care. It would have made it illegal for minors to transition, with their doctors facing up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $5,000. A lawsuit against the ban is pending, as parents of two trans minors sued the state to prove the law is unconstitutional. A circuit court judge issued an injunction blocking enforcement of the ban, which would have gone into effect on January 1st. The anti-LGBTQ plus group Alliance Defending Freedom and the Idaho Attorney General are attempting to defend the ban. But the circuit court has continued to block the law's enforcement. Idaho appealed to put the injunction on hold. The U.S. Court of Appeals refused. Paul Carlos Southwick is the legal director for ACLU of Idaho. He said in a press release, quote, This ruling should be celebrated by everyone who decries discrimination. We celebrate alongside transgender youth and their families throughout Idaho who will continue to have access to the health care they need and deserve, end quote. You're listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for an in-depth interview with Sola Awaley about her new cookbook, Start Here, Instructions for Becoming a Better Cook. She's speaking tonight at Powell's on Burnside. At 6, it's Keeping Democracy Alive. Then at 7, it's Exploration with Michio Kaku. At 8, it's Drinking from Puddles. And at 10, Life During Wartime. Tonight's weather, rain with lows near 43 degrees. Tomorrow's weather, rain with a high of 54 and lows around 38 degrees. Today in history, Johnny Rotten, known as John Lydon, was born. He was the lead singer of the Sex Pistols and one of the fathers of punk music. He said, I think national pride leads to nothing but wars and hate. A church in Tigard met this week to discuss setting aside three spaces in their parking lot for unhoused people to park at night. But Coin News reports hundreds of church members held a yelling match over the proposal. Christ the King Lutheran Church's pastor, Dorothy Cottingham, says their partnership with the housing nonprofit Just Compassion runs a safe parking program. It would only make space for three people, each sleeping in a car, not in vans or campers. Quote, this is an opportunity to open a space that is safe hygienic, clean, monitored, and managed, she told the gathering. But the crowded meeting on Tuesday night saw supporters and attractors of the idea, with many people warning that making room for three could spiral into a street filled with garbage and drug dealing. Just Compassion Executive Director Vernon Baker says the program's three clients will pass a background check and must be newly homeless to participate. Local resident Severin Hamilton lives adjacent to the church. Quote, Who's to say that other people they're friends with and know that there are services here in a porta potty are not going to start parking on 114th, he said. The meeting's end, it remained unclear whether the program would move forward. Testifying in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee about child exploitation in social media today, the CEOs of X, formerly known as Twitter, Meta, formerly known as Facebook, and TikTok, all apologized for negative impact that their platforms have had on teenagers. Throughout the hearing, parents who lost their children to suicide silently held up photos of them. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley asked Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg if he has ever, quote, personally compensated any victims or families for what they've been through. Zuckerberg responded, quote, I don't think so. 
In a rare moment of bipartisan unity, Democrats and Republicans asked hard questions during what was described as a heated discussion lasting hours. Sexual abuse, addiction, eating disorders, and suicide triggered by social media posts were all discussed. Parents and lawmakers agreed to the social media companies not doing enough to protect children from the harm their products cause. Former meta-engineer-turned-expert-witness Arturo Behar said, Meta's general approach is, trust us, we'll do the right thing, but how can we trust Meta? The way they talk about these issues feels like they're trying to gaslight the world. While both Democrats and Republicans appeared to agree on the issues, it's unclear if the Kids Online Safety Act, proposed in 2022 by Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, will pass. Colorado stakeholders, including the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, are gathering together to craft a plan to protect and manage the Mancus River. And Oregon Governor Tina Kotek revise a ta- re- revives excuse me, a task force taking stock of Native American items in state and public collections. With those stories and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Farmers, landowners, and local government agencies are coming together Wednesday on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation in Colorado for the latest listening session on a plan to protect and manage the Mancus River. KSJD's Chris Clements reports. The group behind the plan is made up of municipalities and organizations that lie along the river, like Mesa Verde National Park, the Mancus Conservation District, and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. The listening session is intended for tribal members and ag producers who rely on the river to give feedback on a new watershed stream management plan. Sensa Wolcott is the watershed coordinator for the Conservation District. There are certain times and certain spots where the river does dry up, um, especially obviously in drought years, and that is really hard on irrigators, and it's really detrimental to the ecology and the the riparian aquatic animals as well. You know, like fish can't move. Wolcott says the first draft of the plan will likely be finished by late February. It'll serve as a guide for communities to better use and conserve water resources and could include voluntary or compensated changes to irrigation rules during drier years. More outreach sessions will take place starting this summer for feedback on the first draft. The finalized plan isn't expected until 2025. I'm Chris Clements. After a nearly four-year hiatus, Oregon Governor Tina Kotek has revived a task force dedicated to taking stock of Native American items in state and public collections. KLCC's Brian Bull has more. Then-Governor Kate Brown established the Task Force on Oregon Tribal Cultural Items in 2017. Its 16 members were from all nine federally recognized tribes within Oregon, as well as government, university, and law enforcement officials. But their operations were paused in 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic spread. Jesse Beers is the Cultural Stewardship Manager for the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Laura Umpqua, and Siosla Indians, and was with the original task force. I really want to convey how happy I am that this is being reconvened because it was an important task force. There's items that the state may hold that the tribes aren't aware of, and there's knowledge that tribes have that the state is unaware of. So it's a way of building relationships. Oregon became the first state to share survey findings on tribal items in 2019. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. 
A signing ceremony between two tribal colleges to help address teacher shortages in Indian country was held this week in Macy, Nebraska, at the Nebraska Indian Community College. The college signed an agreement with Haskell Indian Nations University, which is located in Lawrence, Kansas, to increase opportunities for students who earn an associate degree in teacher preparation at the Nebraska College to transfer to Haskell for a bachelor's degree in elementary education. Christine Sedbeck, Nebraska Indian Community College Academic Dean expressed her gratitude for the partnership, saying it will help their students reach goals of becoming teachers. And trying to serve the, the needs of our students where they are at and really trying to promote that growth of more Native teachers that will stay in the because they're invested. Cameron Reynolds, Vice Chairman of the Santee Sioux Nation, attended the signing event and talked about why representation matters. He says it's important that young students see Native teachers who can help inspire them as they become future leaders in tribal communities. We talk about that all the time, you know, about our kids running our tribe, our kids being professionals. The effort between the two tribal colleges is to create a pathway for graduates to become certified teachers in elementary school settings. The agreement goes into effect this summer. Nebraska Indian Community College offers students certificates and associate degrees at three campuses in Nebraska and is working to offer its first baccalaureate program. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Iowa State University researchers are using stem cells to treat blood diseases like leukemia. Their goal is to eliminate the need for often lethal bone marrow transplants. Mark Moran has more. Researchers at Iowa State University are using stem cells from a person's blood to treat certain types of cancer. Their work could mean the end of bone marrow transplants. The research boils down to taking the next step in personalized medicine. Researchers draw blood from a patient's body, grow new stem cells in the lab, then use blood containing the new stem cells to attack blood diseases like leukemia in that patient. ISU cell biologist Raquel Espen-Pelazon says this research could end the need for bone marrow transplants, which can be lethal 60% of the time because of what's known as graft-versus-host disease. It's not them, obviously, because it came from another person, and then it's just going to attack the tissues of the patient. Federal data show right now there are 18,000 people in the U.S. suffering from blood diseases which can only be treated with bone marrow transplants. She adds, it's incredibly complex to get a handle on blood-borne diseases, mostly because the body generates as many as 200 billion new red blood cells every day. So Espen Pelazon says researchers are turning to the Petri dish to create stem cells in the embryonic condition, their natural state, before the patient became sick, and using them to treat disease. Naturally, how can we recreate that in the dish so that we can make blood stem cells from patients. Espen Palazon says researchers will eventually be able to turn on critical switches in the stem cells that could make them even more effective in treating disease. This is Mark Moran for Iowa News Service. Firefighting experts are preparing for the upcoming fire season and urging people to prep their homes too. Suzanne Potter has more in California. 
The Golden State's wildfire death toll has ticked down in recent years, mostly because megafires have managed to avoid urban areas. But firefighters have some tips for the millions of Californians who live along the wildland-urban interface. Santa Barbara County Fire Captain Scott Safechuck says the first thing is to create defensible space around the home. If nothing is completely overgrown and the dead component is removed and you maintain your landscaping well, it helps slow down or inhibit the fire. Safechuck also recommends removing any tree limbs that hang lower than six feet off the ground. You can harden your home with fire-resistant roof tiles and should remove any flammable items or wood piles nearby and close the eaves. In addition, people are being asked to sign up for their county's emergency alert system and be sure to heed any evacuation orders. Fire agencies are updating their equipment ahead of fire season as well. Thomas Teig is president and CEO of the nonprofit Direct Relief, which helped Santa Barbara County Fire refurbish an old Black Hawk helicopter and acquire several 4x4 off-road rescue vehicles. The circumstances are changing related to fire, including more extreme events that last longer. As we build into the wildland-urban interface, it increases the human health risk, so it's important that the people fighting those fires are properly equipped for the new reality. Tyke says in the past two years, the Firehawk helicopter has been used in 37 wildfires, plus multiple hoist rescues and medical evacuations. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Heat from treated wastewater can warm homes. A collaboration in Duluth aims to repurpose warm water discharged from a wastewater plant to heat homes in a low-income neighborhood. Dr. Anthony Lysowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In Duluth, Minnesota, millions of gallons of warm, treated wastewater are discharged into the St. Louis River each day. Right now, the effluent temperature coming out of the end of the process is about 90 degrees. So there's a huge amount of waste heat there. Jody Slick is with Ecolibrium 3, a nonprofit based in Lincoln Park, the largely low-income neighborhood where the wastewater plant is located. Her group, along with the city and other partners, is working on a plan to harness that waste heat and use it as a source of energy. They've received a $700,000 federal grant to design the project. The system would use pumps to distribute heat from the wastewater through a network of underground pipes, providing the main heat source for hundreds of homes in the neighborhood. A few similar systems are already in use in Finland, Denmark, and China. Slick says she's excited about using the approach in the U.S., where wastewater treatment plants are often located in low-income communities that are exposed to a disproportionate number of environmental hazards. We have the possibility of opening up a brand new energy source that turns what has often been considered an environmental justice burden into a benefit for these neighborhoods. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. You are listening to the KBU Evening News for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. 
Our production team for tonight's newscast includes myself and my co-anchor Ezra. The producer is Lisa Loving, and our engineer is Ray Bodwell. Special thanks to Eric Takeoff, Antonio Gonzalez, Suzanne Potter, Farah Siddiqui, and the inestimable and indescribable Dr. Anthony Lizewitz. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Reed Johnson. And I'm Ezra. All of our KBOO programs, including the Evening News, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text k-boo to 44321. Stay tuned now for the KBOO News In-Depth. KBOO News In-Depth, where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community.